Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and welcome to Dialed In. As always, we thank our friends at the Believe Network for hosting our podcast each and every week. And as always, we thank our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster. And today, very excited about the show. Uh, coming off Boomer Esiason last week and sort of tying a ribbon around the NFL season, but not quite yet. I thought we were, but today we're going to have a guy who, look, um, his career is unrivaled. And when I say unrivaled, I, I truly mean unrivaled by anybody in the history of sports broadcasting. And that's Joe Buck. Um, you look at what he has done at only 51 years old. I mean, he's called the World Series every year going back to 1996, except for two different years, 97 and 99, multiple Super Bowls, U.S. Open Golf Championship. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, an entire generation, and closing in on two generations of fans, uh, have watched Joe Buck every single week, seemingly, for the last nearly 30 years. It's incredible. You can talk about Dick Enberg. You can talk about Al Michaels. You can talk about Kurt Gowdy. Talk about whoever you want. And I'm not suggesting that he's better than all those guys. That's not what I'm saying. Although I think you can make a strong argument that he is. But the number of events and the magnitude of the events that Joe Buck has done, going back to when Fox started in 1994, is simply mind-boggling. Joe Buck next. He's dialed in. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call one 844 Y-E-S-C-H-N-K. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Joseph Francis Buck was born in April of 1969 in St. Petersburg, Florida, to parents Carol and Jack Buck. He was raised, of course, in St. Louis, Missouri, where his father became a legendary local and national sportscaster for the Cardinals and for the NFL, and Major League Baseball, among many, many other sports. After graduating from St. Louis Country Day School, he began his broadcasting career while he was still an undergraduate at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Joe Buck called play-by-play -play for the then Louisville Redbirds. 
Uh, it's a minor league affiliate back in those days of the Cardinals. Two years later, he was in the major leagues in St. Louis working alongside his dad. In 1994, Joe Buck was hired by Fox, one of the first six original play-by-play announcers. He was 25 and thus became the youngest man ever to announce in the National Football League on national television. Since 1996, he's called the World Series every year except for 97 and 99. He's called multiple Super Bowls, multiple U.S. Open golf championships, hosted his own show on HBO, published a book, appeared as himself in multiple television shows, is a seven-time Sports Emmy Award winner for his play-by-play work. He will join his dad in the Pro Football Hall of Fame this year. More importantly, he has two grown daughters, nearly grown anyway, and two and a half years ago, he and his wife Michelle were blessed with twin sons. There'll be three in April. Joe Buck, welcome to Dialed In. What did I miss in that intro that you are most proud of? I don't, I don't know what you missed, but everything you said had me smiling. I can say that. Um, you know, it's funny. First of all, your kids are never grown, and, and you know that as well as I yeah, do. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm certainly finding that out with 24- and 21-year-olds and uh, two-and-a-half-year-old twins at 51 years old. That is, that is a weird combination. I mean, it, I do math all day long. I was terrible at math in school, which is why I – probably went into broadcast. <laughs> you and me both. I get it. And, yeah, I'm not accounting. Uh, but every time, you know, when I see something, I'm like, okay, so if the boys are 25, yeah. then that means I'm going to be seven. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. Math, math just is not my friend. It never was, and I'm going to die with math, <laughs> not my friend. But I think the other part part of, of everything you said is damn near everything that was in my resume, like you could change out the name. Yours for mine, mine for yours. I mean, you and I have so many parallels and so many uh, shared experiences, whether it's starting at Fox in 94 and what that was all like and and going through the audition process or you and me being finalists for the job that you got with the Cubs uh, back in the day in the early 90s, whatever year that was. Um, you know, we, we've we've both been really lucky. We've both been friends uh, for a long, long time, and I'm happy to come on. I'm 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 glad to talk to you, and uh, what I'm I'm an open book, which sometimes gets me in trouble, but I'll do my best to not do that. Here well, today. look, you know, I want to I, I want to start, and a lot of people when they have a chance to sit down with you and talk to you, you know, they'll hearken back to your childhood, and you're right, you and I very very similar. Um, Growing up, famous dads in the towns we live, uh, the heartland of America, you in St. Louis, me in Cincinnati, both of our fathers in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Ford Frick Award winners. Uh, you know, we got to do things, go places, meet people most kids, you know, can only dream about. Um, but you were the youngest of eight kids. And, you know, I, I always had the feeling in, in, in reading parts of your book and hearing you being interviewed that because you were the youngest, you got to do a lot of things with your dad that, say, somebody like me, my dad was just trying to get by. He was a young dad. He got married in college, all those kinds of things. Your dad had already started to mature into a full-fledged, successful adult. So is it fair to say that you 
were not only his son, but on a lot of levels, you got to be his friend. Yeah, you know, that's really well said. And, and I haven't really thought of it that way, but now I probably should because I'm kind of, history is repeating itself uh, with me, mm-hmm. uh, with these young boys, and, and kind of a second crack at it. But, but that, that makes it feel or sound like I wasn't a good dad the first time around or I was, you know, scraping things together when Natalie and Trudy were born. I, I would say that if you – you know, we're interviewing them. And you said, who, who's the one person on this planet that you can count on? Who's your best friend in that way? They would both say me. I'd mm-hmm. like to think that. Uh, they've told me as much, so I'd like to think they'd say that <laughs> without me being in the room. But uh, you're right. You know, my dad was scraping and really, I would say, building the foundation for what was to come when he was a young dad with his first set of kids and then meets my mom, you know, I come into the world and, uh, and, and my dad was just starting to take off. You know, I was born in 69. Harry Carey was here in St. Louis, mm-hmm. was fired right about that time. And that was kind of when my dad went from second chair to first chair and really started to build uh, you know, this Hall of Fame career, and and then I was kind of his second crack at, at being a dad, and you're right. I mean, he was the best man at my wedding uh, back in 93. He took me everywhere. Um, I, I think I was at least smart enough as a little kid to know that when my dad kind of got that voice going, that deeper voice mm-hmm. or the more serious tone that he was on the radio, even from his office on the phone, like, like I'm doing right now with you, and if I was going to be able to sit in there i had to shut up and not act like a four-year-old or a Mm three-year-old i had to be quiet but i was fascinated by what he was doing and i just wanted to be around him and fortunately he wanted me to be around him and and so yeah we were more buddies than we were father and son he worked harder than any way harder than i ever have ever even thought about working and so when he was home i didn't want to waste time by being punished or being like this little bratty kid I just, I just, I walked a pretty straight and narrow path because I wanted to use that time to be with him, to go down to the ballpark, to be around the Cardinals, and and kind of take it all in. So, yeah, you're right. He he and I were buddies more than father son, and I think I got to see a different side of my dad than my older half siblings, and consequently, they saw a different side of our dad uh, than I saw when when he was a more established uh, professional. You know, moms are so frequently overlooked um, when you're growing up in a household like that. Um, They're so giving. They're relentlessly unselfish. Uh, You're still so lucky. And, you know, it's always easy for people to ask you about your dad. But what about your mom? I mean, you know, because your dad's on the road so much, you were having to spend, I would guess, like most of us, most of your time around your mom. Talk about the influence you think, Joe, that she has had on you. She, I, I will guarantee you this. If, if you cut me open and looked at the, uh, the rings inside me of aging, I would say she has more to do with my, my career, my, the way I am, uh, my mental makeup, my worries, my joys. I mean, kind of have been seen through her. And you're right. I am lucky. She's 81. She had went through COVID in October. 
got through that on her own, really, uh, really didn't need any medical intervention, which is, you know, I think has got to be taken as a, a decent sign, but, uh, she taught me everything. And, and so my dad was kind of like the, the Disneyland dad. And, and my, my mom was the one that when he was gone for weeks at a time, you know, at a time where there were no cell phones and there was no FaceTime mm-hmm. and there was none of that, she was doing everything. I mean, she was mother, father, she was the disciplinarian. She was the, the, the one to give you the big hug. And, and she's my biggest fan and my best critic. Like my dad, when I started as a kid and, and you and I were at Fox in 94, uh, you know, my dad was kind of the hands off. I'm not going to push him. I'm not going to tell him how I would have done it. Blah, blah, blah. My mom was the one mm-hmm. who would say, this sounded really good or this didn't. You sounded like you were having fun. You sounded like you were tired. So she's, she's been more, she has more to do with who I am and what I am than my dad. And I will never forget you saying that to somebody. I don't, I think I was within earshot of you, but we were walking out of a booth one time. I think it was in St. Louis. And you said, somebody was asking you about your dad. And, you know, maybe it was because you and I were together that somebody said something. And you said, you know, I'm tired of my mom getting the short end of it because really she's the one that, that did all the heavy lifting. And I was like, man, amen. That's exactly how I feel about my mom. Uh, and, and I was fortunate uh, not to ramble, but she was, a, she was on Broadway. She was, you know, not a star on Broadway, but good enough to be an understudy was on stage, uh, was really talented singer, uh, and, and was every bit uh, a part of my dad's success. She, he would go over banquet lines with her. She would punch them up for him. She was, she was kind of the, the perfect uh, compliment to what he was doing back then. And, and I saw all that as a kid. So it wasn't like she was just the, the mom and the dad at times. She was also really helpful, practically speaking on his, for his career and, and, and for mine to this day. You know, baseball has changed so much when, when, when we were growing up, uh, and, and I recall like it was yesterday, and, and, you know, my dad gets a job with the Reds, and it's a big red machine, and all the biggest stars in the game seem to be on one team, and Pete Rose, and Johnny Bench, and Joe Moore, on and on and on and on. And, you know, back in those days, players didn't run a house, they all stayed in the same hotel. And the Reds were training back in those days in Tampa, Florida. And so you had, I mean, you had all these guys staying in one hotel. So we'd get out for spring break. We'd go down. And, and, and one of my fondest memories as a kid was every single day when the game would be over, for the two weeks I'd be down there on spring break, I would hit tennis balls every afternoon with George Foster. Every day for 14 days in a row at the same time without fail. Do you have a memory like that growing up around the Cardinals? I do. I mean, I have a hundred of them. You know, it's funny. My sister can remember everything. She can remember what outfit she was wearing when we were 10. Uh, and, and I don't remember anything, but I can remember all the stuff with the Cardinals, like being in the dugout, shagging fly balls on the road during batting practice in a bat boy uniform that barely fit over my pudgy little body. Uh, I, I remember uh, playing catch out in front of the dugout before big league games on that smoking hot turf yep. in St. Louis when I was a little kid. Uh, I mean, like regular season games. I remember learning how to pitch in the Cardinals bullpen with Hub Kittle, the Cardinals pitching coach in the early 80s, uh, basically giving me a tutorial 
uh, on on my cutter and and how I was you know trying to get out and comparing me to Rick Russell probably because I had the same body as a twelve year old <laughs> that Rick Russell had. Uh, but throwing to Bob Guerin, who's now the Dodgers bench coach. Yeah, uh, he was he was in the Cardinal organization and he was the backup catcher and. Hub Kittle would say, Garen, get your stuff. What Bucks kid throw to you? And I was, I mean, it's just crazy the stuff that, that I got to do or just being around other players, kids, you know, being around, uh, John Simmons, who's Ted Simmons son mm-hmm. or being around, you know, all these, these players. And then the next generation down and us doing the same thing, whipping a tennis ball at each other, you know, playing stickball or whatever we were doing. Yep. So it was, it was everything that people think and more of, of being kind of inside the ropes, so to speak, as a little boy around my dad, as it was for you, uh, you know, just, just seeing this stuff up close. It's why I, I guarantee you it's why when I was doing the Cardinals at 21 or doing two years of minor leagues while I was in college at 19 and 20 years old, it wasn't, it wasn't too much because I'd been around it my yep. entire life. No I didn't doubt. ever expect to do all this stuff, but it was like, you're moving just one seat over in the booth where you grew up. And so that part of being around a big league team of being in a big league booth of, of sensing all that craziness that goes on during a broadcast, I, that was second nature to me. Now it was, can you just call the play by play and get through the broadcast? But the rest of it was already in my DNA. You lost your dad, Joe, in 2002. He was 77 years old. Um, were you there the night he died, and was he able to communicate anything to you before he passed? Well, it was kind of like uh, it was Shakespearean almost because this guy who had made his living and had helped so many people by using his voice, uh, he had lung cancer. He went in in December to the hospital of 01 after doing a banquet, of course, and then went left the banquet, went into the hospital, uh, didn't go home, and had the bottom portion of his uh, one of his lungs taken off where the cancer was, and they were really optimistic. Then he got a uh, an infection and and eventually was in the intensive care unit, and they had to use a, a trach. Uh, and, and had to, he mm-hmm. couldn't use his voice. So he was mouthing things for almost seven months, uh, basically, really six. He died uh, third week of June in '02, And I, I really didn't hear his voice as I knew it for his entire hospital stay, which was, mm-hmm. you know, an eternity looking back on it yeah. every day going down there. But, but yeah, I, I, went to, I went there every day. And I went the de- the night before they were going to unplug him, in essence, and all the machines, take all the tubes out of him. Uh, and, and we knew that that next morning he was going to die. Um, and, and it was, it was, I remember when his brother Earl came in town and, and when you see somebody in a hospital, that's just withering and sick like that. Uh, you don't really you don't, you don't really see the big picture. You're, you're just going kind of frame by frame. Mm-hmm. And my, my dad's brother had not seen him in months, obviously. And he showed up and my dad was just, you know, a shell of himself. And, and he was like, this is, this is just horrible. And, and it was a, it was a good wake up call. And then shortly thereafter it was like, look, this isn't getting any better. 
So on, uh, you know, such and such a day, we're going to take the tubes out. That's going to be it. And I went the night before that was all going to transpire. Um, I have all those half brothers and sisters. I, I didn't feel like I needed to see him actually die. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I said what I wanted to say. Um, I, we had had all these late night talks and, and I, and, and he kind of was aware that it was going to happen the next day. And I, I went, I visited him that night and I said, that's it. I walked out of there with my sister and my, my first wife. And I said, I'm not going back. I'm not going, I'm not coming back here tomorrow. I don't want to be here for all the drama. And the next day I did a game. The Cardinals were playing the angels. It was a couple of days before Daryl Kyle died uh, in his hospital room and or in his hotel room in mm-hmm. Chicago. And so I get, I, I do the game and I tell Al Roboski who I'm doing the game with on TV for the Cardinals. I said, you know, my dad's going to die uh, tomorrow and they're going to take the stuff out. Actually, I actually, it was obviously a three game set. And I, I said, if it's not tomorrow, it'll be by the end of the day or the following day. So he, he, be, he come he becomes emotional. And I, my emotions were kind of at their, at their end. I, I had been mourning losing him forever. And so I'm driving back. The, the morning comes. We have a game that night. I'm set up to do the game. I'm not going down. I'm thinking he's going to pass away within an hour after they take all these tubes out. And he just stays alive on his own and alive, alive all day. And I'm waiting for the phone call, waiting for the phone call. I go down and do the game. Still alive. They pull the game down by his head while, while I'm doing it on TV. He's listening to it. And I, I, I'm waiting, waiting, and, and it, the call never comes. And so I'm driving by the hospital on my way home from the game, and there's Barnes Hospital, mm. and I'm like, ah, all right, I'm going back. And I went back in, and I went to his room, and all the tubes were out, and there was no beeping, and there were no noises, and the nurses left. And I went, and I said, I, I don't know if, if you've been hanging on all day for me to say goodbye, <laughs> but I, I want you to know that I've got everything covered. I've got mom covered. Everything will be fine. You're my best friend. It's time to go. And, and I gave him a kiss and I walked out of the room. And by the time I got to my car, he had passed away. And I, it's, you know, I I don't know that he was waiting for me to show up and say goodbye. Maybe the narcissistic side of me says he was, but um, I'm glad I went. And I'm glad I said my final goodbye Mm -hmm. and I'm glad it was just he and I, and, uh, you know, that was, that was the night that, uh, my, my world changed and and my family's world changed. But, but like I said, it it was time. You were very close to your first partner at Fox, Tim Green. Uh, what an unbelievable guy, you know, I'll be the first to admit, you know, when I first met him, uh, when we had our seminar, uh, back in 94 and, 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 and you know he 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 was he was so smart and he carried himself and so strong and tough and you know I don't know why I was sort of turned off by it but then later I, I got a chance to do a bunch of cotton bowls with him and I really came to like him so very very much. What an unbelievable guy! But 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 he's going through a brutal battle as well with ALS. Yeah. And I've texted him back and forth, and I know you've been in constant contact with him. Uh, how's he doing? I mean, I know that Man, sounds he, like a ridiculous question, but but when I've texted no, him, he not. seems like he's in a good he's in a good good place. Yeah, I mean, I would encourage anybody 
to go online and look at the 60 minutes piece that's been done. They've done a, an original piece on Tim and then a follow-up talking to him about, you know, ALS. And does he think that playing in the NFL or playing football in general is, is what put him in this position. And, and he's pretty clear that, that he knows that it's a contributing factor or he believes it is and that he wouldn't change anything. Um, when I met him, I, I met him on the day that I auditioned. He and I auditioned at Fox together in March of, uh, of 94. And little did we know that when we auditioned together, we walked out of that audition room and then went, I think we went to Denny's on the way back to the uh, airport to fly out of L.A., that we would be working together um, as partners. And he was fresh off the field. He knew nothing about broadcasting. I was new to the NFL and didn't know anything about calling football, uh, but we made it through together, and we became really close friends then. And and then I'm not going to lie. I mean, we we all went our se- we sure. went our separate ways after being together. But you know, this has a way of bringing people back close once again. And we always kept in contact. But for him, you know, he looked like Christopher Reeve. Yep. He he was a guy that was at the top of his class at Syracuse. He uh, was a smallish defensive end, first-round pick, kind of the overachiever, has written, I mean, 20-plus fictional novels Mm -hmm. about sports, and has a law degree. I mean, it's just it just keeps coming with this guy, and and now he's battling ALS, but raising money, raising awareness, doing what he can, going through therapies, and he's a tough tough guy to bet against. but yeah, I was fortunate to be with him early. I think I learned some things from him. I think he learned some things from me. We were all back then in 94 just feeling our way. Yeah. And you were with Anthony, yeah. uh, who I'm sure you had known from his time in Cincinnati. Yeah. So it, a lot of those pairings made sense back then. And uh, yeah, I, I just I can't imagine going through what he's going through, but, but I also can't imagine anybody with more kind of internal strength to, to be able to to make the most of, of his life, uh, you know, from here on out, however long that may last. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to watch. Uh, I have a very dear friend in our neighborhood in Cincinnati who was an All-American lacrosse player at North Carolina, and uh, and, and he's going through that very late stages, but his, you know, it, it doesn't affect the mind. and and. The, 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 Which is the, a good, yeah, effect. it is, and and I just can't imagine, uh, you know, what that is like. But he, like Tim, he's just handled it with such incredible grace and 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 sense of humor. Uh, both of them have great families. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. You, you and I touched on this texting before this, and you know, all of us have in our lives uh, insecurities. Uh, I've had to deal with OCD issues forever. Um, and they're not easy to deal with. For you, uh, I, I think it's going back to 1993. Uh, you're starting to lose your hair, and and all of a sudden now, you know, you, you want to get surgery and get the plugs. And, and and look, in our business, and people can say whatever they want to say. The bottom line is, it certainly helps you. It's not the final determining factor, but it certainly helps you to look good if you make your living on television. And so you felt like this was something that you needed and wanted to do. Well, ultimately, in 2011, um, you lose your voice because of this surgery. Um, yep. you know, I, I had a voice problem, but mine was was very different than yours. Um, 
Um, you know, you go back and you think about that. I mean, were you were you in the middle of the night, Joe, sitting there going, "My God, you know, here I am in my forties, um, and, and and or barely forty, and you're thinking, is this all yeah. coming to an end?" Totally. I mean, I was shaking to my core. I mean, I was going through, and everybody, you know, I, I think I don't care what level you do it at, and, and I don't care how well-known somebody is. I mean, I was watching that Britney Spears documentary the other night with my wife. Um, and, and you just realize this is just a kid, you know, that was a talented kid that got thrown into this fast life and it, it kind of has swallowed her up and, and you just feel bad. And you, you look at, and, and my point of bringing any of that up is that, that everybody's got insecurities and everybody's got flaws and everybody's got soft spots and everybody. So for me, yeah, genetically, I am my mom's dad. Yep. And uh, he was a, a bald guy, you know, early. And and so I'm losing my hair. And I remember Steve Horn, who works with me, who, you know, you know well. Mm-hmm. He goes, "Can I?" he took me to lunch one day in the early 90s. And he's like, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you a couple things that you're not going to like. Can I, can I tell you a couple things you're not going to like in, in the way that Steve Horn says it to He's like, you, you 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 need to lose twenty pounds, and you need to you need to think about getting hair transplants. I was like, well, that's funny you should say that because I'm already signed up to get hair transplant surgery, and uh, shortly thereafter I went on Jenny Craig diet, and and I I lost a bunch of weight. Uh, but the hair thing was was not anything I could control without actually getting uh, that procedure done and so i got the first six of them done which is a lot by the way i have a massive head and really thin hair (laughs) and uh, i got them through local anesthetic and god there's just nothing more painful than than having a strip of hair ripped out of the back of your head and then these things like surgically implanted in the front of your head it's 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 torture and the doctor on the way out of the last one's like, you really don't do well with a surgery, do you? Which is basically him saying that I'm just a wimp. <laughs> and I said, well, no, I, I hate it. And he's like, you know, you can do it under general anesthetic. I was like, what? He's like, but it's another. Yeah, now you tell me, right? Six deep. Yeah, now thanks after me squirming right. for hours on end while you're cutting into my head. Uh, okay, I'm in. So I get one, it's fine. I get my last one in 2011. And and it didn't have to be for, for, for hair. It could be any time they put a tube down your throat for any procedure, that's in the waiver that you sign. And you're about to get something done. You're like, yeah, okay, you sign all the paperwork. You don't even really read it. And and they they had, it was like operator error. They put this tube down my throat. They overinflated the cuff. They're supposed to hold it in place. That that tube or that ring that, that holds the trach thing in place sat on my laryngeal nerve and bruised it. And my left vocal cord wouldn't fire for the better part of eight months. Well, the first seven months of that, I'm thinking my career is over for something as stupid as getting hair transplants, not like a, you know, not something serious. So it shook me to my core and I was going through a divorce and I, you know, you're wondering if your kids are still going to love you and you're wondering how you're going to make it to the other end of this thing. And now I'm thinking my career is over because I can't talk. And, uh, you know, it slowly started to come back. But I was kind of the outlier. I went to a guy in Boston, a Dr. Stevens, I tells. He's like, pretty much after three months, what you have is what you're going to have. And I was like, well, we're past three months. And if this is what I've got, I'm done. 
And, uh, you know, it, it fortunately came back. But, you know, when you get rattled like that and you get brought to your knees uh, for whatever, it, it I, I think you can look back on it once you get to the other side of it and it becomes a blessing. I'm so glad I went through that. Yeah. At the time, I hated every second of it. But when I look back, I'm like, it made me appreciate my voice. It made me appreciate what I get to do. It made me made me love talking into a microphone again. And, uh, you know, I, I will never take it for granted again. And uh, it, it, was, it was a good life lesson, and everybody goes through stuff like that. Nobody's living a perfect life, and, and it's just how you have to deal with it. Well, Joe, we can't thank you enough for your time uh, today. Uh, this is going to be a two-part series on Dialed In in our visit with Joe Buck. Uh, next week, we're going to start talking about his career. Some of the, some of the big moments that he's had, a Super Bowl, World Series, certain plays. We're also going to talk about, did he ever say no when Fox asked him about doing an event? Did he ever say no? I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. Uh, and we're also going to talk about um, getting married for the second time and being a father to twin boys at the age of 49. That'll be next week on Dialed In. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.